to dinner and then come back and we'll, we'll stay for a little bit. There'll be a budget update and those things. Um, the next Saturday after that, on September the 30th, we're going to be having our uh, church-wide barbecue at the Heritage Pavilion, which if you haven't been there, is the nicest pavilion in Peterborough, so you're in for a treat. Yeah, if you've been to the Nichols Oval or Beavermead ones, they're all graffitied and gross, and this is like the one they take care of. Anyways, uh, this is a great time for us to get together as a whole church, which uh, is something that we don't often get to do. We, in a, a number of years now, we haven't had our church-wide retreat, uh, so this is an opportunity for us to fellowship together um, and enjoy one another's company outside of uh, Sundays and outside of our uh, fellowship groups. So as a whole church. So we really encourage you to be there. If you're not a member, you're welcome to come as well. This is just a great time for us to enjoy one another's company to the glory of God. Uh, please join us for that. So September 24th, members meeting. Uh, September 30th, our church-wide barbecue. Uh, that's it for announcements this evening. Uh, and again, a reminder that our communion, uh, the outer two rings of every tray have wine and everything inside of that is grape juice. I'm going to read from uh, Psalm 67 for our call to worship this evening. Uh, Psalm 67. You're welcome to turn there uh, as I read or else uh, listen along. Beginning in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, and God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us and bless us. We pray, Lord, that the light of your face will shine upon us, that we will see not only the work of Christ that you have done in the lives of individuals, saving us from our sin, Lord, rescuing us unto life and righteousness and the hope of the kingdom of God. We pray also, Lord, for your peace to extend to this world, that the nations may be made glad. We pray, Lord, that you will bless us and increase your good to us so that people might see the wondrous works of God and turn to him in faith and repentance. We pray this evening, Lord, that you will fill our hearts with praise, that we will be mindful of all the many ways you have blessed us in Christ, and we will give you the praise that you are due. We will exalt the name of Jesus here at Hill City this evening. We ask for your spirit to help us, to fill us with affection for Christ the Lord, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in the word as the scriptures are proclaimed and preached. We pray, Lord, to you, that you will prepare our hearts to receive instruction, that we might be convicted of our sins and led to repentance, that we might be convicted of righteousness and led into obedience, Lord, and that we might give you, again, the praise that you are due. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we are going to pray for Sion. For those of you who don't know, Sion is making her way down to the U.S. of A. and uh, the land of freedom. And we're trying not to be jealous. But she recently had a job offered to her at Mayo Clinic, which we're thankful for. For those of you who know, she has been looking for work in her field for quite some time. So she will be moving on from us. Sion has been a part of our church family and my personal family for years now, four years, maybe a little bit over. And so 
Um, believe it or not, not everyone who leaves our church does so in a fit of rage. There are some people who, who, who leave our church, and we, we actually want to pray the Lord's blessing over them and, and commission them to uh, whatever God has for them. So with that, I'd like to invite Sion up and anyone else who'd like to come pray and lay hands on her. We can commission her to what the Lord has for her next. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and we give you thanks and praise for the hand of protection and provision that you have laid upon Sion, that you have brought her literally from faraway lands, that you have not only preserved her life, but her faith, that as we can testify that her love for you is strong, Lord, and her desire that you would be known, that your son would be known among the nations, is strong, and this is the fruit of your mercy and your grace in her life. We thank you for the witness that she's been not only to our congregation, to our family, to um, my daughters, and a friend to my wife and a sister to us all. We thank you for the witness that she's been to her friends, uh, to her peers in Peterborough, Lord, and we pray that as she moves on, that you would help the light that is Christ to shine even more brightly within her. We pray, Lord, that um, all that she does would be done for your glory. This new vocation that she's stepping into would be done to your glory. And with the strength that you supply, Lord, we pray that you would provide for all of her needs and that you would protect her in the Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to have partnered with her to love her and to care for her and to be loved by her in this time. We pray that the seeds of your word and the seeds of love that were sown would take deep root in her heart and would produce an abundance of fruit for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and amen. Stand with us.
We'll be reading from 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 for our time of confession. 2 Peter 2, verses 19 to 22. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if they have been escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. 
For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Do you actually believe what you say you believe? Do you actually believe the things that you say you do? Because if not, then you might be more foolish than you think you are. Now, there are many forms of mire and forms of vomit. Shirking responsibilities, being a coward, reveling in your own self-pity, or any other obvious sins. The sin I'd like to highlight here is not a lack of courage, pitifulness, or shirking responsibility. It is the returning to. Returning to your vomit is returning to the fruitlessness of sin. These false teachers that Peter is talking about said to have known the way, to have known the truth, but they have gone astray. Their deliberate rejection increases their responsibility before God and thus incurs a greater punishment than if one who had less understanding and goes astray. And so anyone who rejects the truth was never saved to begin with. But what happens when we return to our vomit? What happens when we reject the truth by our own sin? The key is repentance. The key is repentance. The difference between one who rejects and the believer who is backsliding is a difference of repentance. Repentance looks like acknowledging your sin and turning from the path of destruction and then finally walking humbly before the Lord. Tears of regret are not enough. It must be tears of repentance. And that is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope of Christ. Christ made a way for us to turn from our wickedness and walk in repentance. Through him, we can do so joyfully. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So join with me now humbly to humble ourselves in repentance and asking the Lord for forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace, the grace that shines on our sins, that we can see and acknowledge the need to turn, the need to admit our sins, Lord, to see that our sins are indeed sins. We acknowledge now and move from regret to repentance. We turn and ask for forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy, for helping us. Sanctify us. Produce a good character in us. Help us to obey your word. Thank you, Lord, for dying, taking the place for our sins, and rising again to do what no man could achieve. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As the ushers come forward now to take up the offering, let us also acknowledge our possessions as the Lord's possessions, and give back in thankfulness for his many forms of generosity. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for, again, your generosity and your blessings, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bless these, this meager offering, Lord, and do what we uh, cannot do with it, Lord. We pray that your kingdom would go forward, Lord, and the gospel would be reached by every means. pray these things in your name. Amen.
Matthew chapter 6, verses 9. Pray then like this. Father in heaven, give us this, daily, this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Spirit. And we pray that you would reorient our hearts around the hallowing of your name. that you would help us to value you as supreme, that you would help us to see your infinite worth, that you would set us free from the paralyzing slavery to the insistence that everything revolve around us, be centered on us. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for this self-centeredness that seems to be so inescapable for fallen creatures. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to set us free, to reestablish his preeminence in the hearts of his people. And so we do pray that you would do that in us, even now. How many dangerous paths have we wandered down? How much time have we wasted? How many sins have we committed? How many acts of love have we neglected? Because we have 
hallowed our own names rather than yours. And so we pray for your forgiveness now in this. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done, Lord. Not our will and not our kingdom. Not our wisdom and knowledge. Not our reimagining of who we are and who this world is made up of and what we ought to be and do. But your kingdom and your will is revealed in your word. We pray that your word would be established as preeminent, not only in our lives, but in our entire church, in all the churches where your people gather, Lord, where your word has fallen silent, where it has been neglected, where it has been distorted, where, where it has been treated as anything other than that which it is, authoritative, truth, Lord, we pray that you would reestablish your word, and as you reestablish your word, that your will would be made known, and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We do pray for the redemption, not only of our bodies, but that the all of creation would be set free from the curse of sin. We do long for that day, Lord. We long for the return of your son, the full coming of his kingdom, and the remaking of all things, Lord. We thank you for providing for us, and we pray that you would continue to, Lord, providing for our material needs, providing labor for us. We thank you for the countless ways that you have done so, and we ask that you would continue to do so. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins, our sins that we have committed today and this week. And we pray that you would help us to forgive those who have forgive, who we have sinned against, who have sinned against us. Lord, let us not be like the man who was forgiven much and went away and refused to forgive his neighbor for relatively little. Help us to be those who are deeply aware of the depths that you have gone through to forgive us. And help us to overflow with love for others. Let us be patient and gracious, not quick to anger, but quick to forgive as you have with us, God. We pray that you would lead us not to temptation, that you would help us not to vainly rely on our own strength, to go down roads and paths which lead nowhere good, God. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. We know that we wage war against rulers and principalities and authorities. And we pray, God, that you would grant us success. Success against an enemy that is far more powerful, far more knowledgeable than we are. So Lord, we lift these concerns to you. We come to you in thankfulness for all that you've done and pray that you continue to walk with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Present help in times of trouble, the mountains move and waters roar. Lord of forces with us, who stands against us, God of Jacob, mighty fortress, come behold. When morning dawns 
Well, we are going to continue our series in Proverbs. We are looking at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 this week. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. Um, I don't know if Ryland said it, but I'm going to be on vacation for the next two weeks. Uh, and if you need um, help or you have serious concerns about me, talk to Ben. And uh, he'd be happy to take all of your criticisms. Um, try to get those out of the next two weeks, actually. Everything that's been simmering in your hearts, you know. If you just want to maybe talk to Ryland and Ben the next couple of weeks, that'd be awesome. Uh, no, in all seriousness, um, I will be away for the next two weeks. And I look forward to seeing you again after that. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray now that your spirit would Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear wonderful things from your word. We confess that your word is truth and we ask now that you would sanctify us by the truth. Purify our hearts, Lord, so that we would be undivided in our devotion to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. We continue the homily that the father is giving to his son, instructing him in the way of wisdom. And now the father has moved to the practical application of what he's been instructing his son. And not only the postures of his heart that he must take upon himself, but now the practice of these things in the world. And he um, highlights the area of wealth. For his son. And this is an important text. It's all important, but it's especially important for our time. The purpose of the world, in one sense, is to display the worth of Jesus Christ. There is what scripture and the ancients would refer to as a telos or an aim, an end. To everything. Uh, we would say today there's a purpose to everything. There's a meaning to everything. The world is in, in, in endowed with meaning because it is the creation of a creator God. And that meaning at a very basic level is to display the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. That's a general statement. Uh, what we will see as we think through not only this text, but the principles in it from a greater biblical perspective is that the purpose of wealth is the same. The purpose of our wealth is to display the worth of Jesus. That's what it's for. The purpose of wealth is not about building our name. The purpose of wealth is not ultimately 
in the accumulation of comfort or buffers against disaster. Even though all of those things are not bad, and the scriptures actually commend us to use our wealth wisely and for a variety of purposes, beneath all of those good and right purposes is a deeper, more fundamental purpose that points all these things in the right direction, and that is to display the worth of Jesus Christ. And I hope that by the end of the sermon, you'll be able to understand practically how do I display the worth of Jesus Christ in my wealth? One of the consequences of our culture's rejection of a Christian worldview is that we have no idea what to do with wealth. Which is, I don't know the word, ironic, it's kind of ironic. Um, I don't know the right word. But it's sad because we have more material prosperity. Uh, we experience more material prosperity than anyone has ever experienced in the history of the world. I mean, we were talking recently about how, you know, if you have a, if you have a, you know, a bachelor apartment with electricity and indoor plumbing, you live better than Solomon, practically speaking. And that's not in any way hyperbole. Um, and, and yet, despite having access to what would be unimaginable wealth and resources to most people who have ever lived and even who currently live, uh, we have no idea what to do with it. I think we're seeing the reaction to this, this kind of confusion and people rejecting. I mean, this is what the van life movement is, right? The van life movement is, surely the whole point of my life is not to have a mortgage. Surely the whole point of my job cannot be to pay for a house for 30 years. That, can, that can't be the reason I'm working. But when you reject God, you reject a meaning to the things that you do, including your labor and that which it produces, namely your wealth. What do we do with this? And so, so many people today, and it's not just because the cost of living is higher and the prospects of ownership are lower, that plays a part of it. But people, as we, as we no longer have a meaning for what our wealth is and what it's for, people are disenfranchised. People think, and they know deep in their souls, that the purpose of life cannot be purely materialistic. The purpose of life cannot be the accumulation of wealth, even though that, in it, that is not in itself a bad thing. You know, Luke, when he writes in the New Testament, thanks Theophilus for funding his journey. God uses wealth for good things. And, and this passage is not an attack against wealth. It's teaching us how to use the wealth that we've been given. But when you don't know what wealth is for, you get it and you get it, and then you think, now what? Was it Rockefeller who said, you know, someone asked him, how much is enough? And he said, a little bit more. <laughs> it's like, because if, you, if it's, what, if it's what, if, what is this for? What is another $3, another $3 million if the end is just accumulation? Well, the Word of God tells us, broadly speaking, that all things... Our lives, all of creation, and our labor and our wealth that it produces is made, is given to display 
the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. So to begin, I want us to think through how the use of wealth honors the Lord. Notice how he begins, honor the Lord with your wealth. So whatever wealth is for, or whatever we ought to be doing with it, the goal of that is that we honor God. The purpose of wealth is to honor the Lord. Watke writes, the root word for the word honor means to be heavy. It signifies to esteem a person as having value and to declare him such, to give him social weight or prominence. So to honor the Lord with our wealth means to show how we value the Lord above all things, including our wealth and through the use of our wealth. The way that we use our wealth is a clear, concrete indication of what we honor and value. In other words, the way we use our wealth is a clear, concrete indication of what has weight to us. See, this is very practical. It's not ethereal at all. Uh, if we want to know what we value, what we treasure, what we esteem, one of the easiest things to do is to look at our, our checking account, go through our credit card statements. And that's just, that is just what we value. That's what we prioritize. Now, I don't want you to miss this sermon because you think I'm not wealthy. Well, wealth is somewhat of a relative term, right? Often when we say such things, we're thinking compared to someone. Uh, relatively, um, all of us are wealthy compared to most people in the world presently, and certain, certainly almost everyone historically. But this applies to you whether or not you are wealthy, how we might say, you know, rich. This is not about the level that you're at on the economic scale. This is whatever you have been given, how you use it. Whether you are the woman with several pennies or you are the king with great abundance. The principle still applies. So I don't, I don't want us to write this off thinking that this is an exhortation to those who might consider wealthy among us. This is for every single human being to think through how they use their resources, basically. To illustrate some of the principles here, I want us to actually go to the Gospels. I want us to read from Matthew 19, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What still do I lack? 
Jesus said to him, if you will be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or lands, for not my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. We can make several observations from this passage. Notice that Jesus wasn't simply telling the man to lose everything of earthly value. He was telling the man to lose what was of limited value for that which was of eternal value. He told him to sell his goods, his possessions, to help the poor, following that with a promise of treasure in heaven. The response of the man demonstrated that he valued earthly possessions and himself more than others, namely the poor, and the eternal treasure, namely in other words, the man's use of his wealth, primarily on himself, showed that he honored himself above God and others. And this is often missed. God is, Jesus is not simply saying, if you have money, it's hard for you to get into heaven, full stop. Which all of us would be part of the people that Jesus is addressing in this passage here. He's not simply saying that. He's getting to something more, uh, more complex than that. It's difficult for a wealthy person to get into heaven because it's difficult for them to value other people and Christ more than themselves. This man was still offered wealth. He was still offered possessions just not ones that built up his name. Just not ones that built up his security. The point Jesus is making is that we must value others and Christ and his reward more than ourselves in order to enter the kingdom. You see, it's not really about money. And so often the rich are tempted to honor themselves with their wealth, to value themselves to demonstrate through the use of their resources that they are the ones they value most. And this could probably be said of most of us. 
if we were to look at our statements and someone objective came in, you know, we were to have a, a, a spiritual audit, you know, we're not doing that, by the way, but if we were to do a spiritual audit, you know, look at this and tell me the state of my heart. What, what, what would be the result of what we value? Of who we value? Notice that Jesus promises those who demonstrate with their wealth that they value Jesus Christ and others more than themselves by leaving everything will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The principle, and we'll return to this, is that those who honor Christ with their wealth will be honored. Now, sometimes we talk about money and we start talking about um, a blessing that comes from the proper stewardship of your money. People start to get the willies thinking about what has been called the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel is a very big problem. It's essentially the idea that God's purpose for your life is to make you healthy and wealthy. That is the highest aim and good of the gospel. Um, what makes this gospel false is that it actually encourages people to value themselves and their health and their wealth more than Christ. The promise of prosperity for those who acknowledge Christ as the greatest treasure by honoring him with their wealth, however, is not the prosperity gospel. God does plan one day to honor those who honor him. That's where it says. God does promise to grant an inheritance of all things to those who are in his son, whom he has given all things. God does plan to give us the riches of all of this world and they could offer in a good sense forever to his people. He does promise to. He does promise to restore our bodies and to grant us complete healing one day. He does promise all of those things, just not necessarily here and now. But the point I want to make is that he doesn't promise those things who value those things above him. And that's the point. The kind of paradox here is that in order to actually gain the treasures that Christ is offering, the man has to let go of the thing that he considered treasure. He had to acknowledge that the worth of these things is nothing compared to Christ and what he offers. That he has to be like the man who has great wealth and he sees an even greater treasure in a field and he sells everything that he has to purchase that field because he knows that it's worth more. The sad state of this man is, it, what Jesus is doing is not saying you need to give up all prosperity and be miserable. He's saying you need to reject this limited prosperity. And you need to receive an even greater treasure. But he was unwilling to do so. This is what sin is. Sin is a settling for rags when you're offered riches. That's what sin is. It's a, it's a rags instead of riches kind of thing. And the reason why he didn't want to give them up is because it required him to give them to other people, the poor, and to receive a greater treasure, namely Christ. In other words, what this man valued was himself. 
But when Christ calls a man, as Bonhoeffer said, he calls him to come and die. So what is a real obstacle in this guy's life and in our life? Is money the obstacle? Money is not the ultimate obstacle. Sin is the obstacle. Self-centeredness, self-promotion, viewing ourselves as preeminent beings, this is the great obstacle. And our wealth is a reflection of whether or not we think that way, whether or not Christ is preeminent in our life or whether we are preeminent in our life. The way we use our money is an expression of what we value, is an expression of what we honor. And the command of the Father to the Son is to honor the Lord with your wealth. Which moves me to my second point. How do we honor the Lord with our wealth? Very simply, we honor the Lord with our wealth by giving the best. This is what he says in this passage. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Now, um, I want us to think through, if you can, for a minute. I want you to imagine walking around Peterborough 80 years ago, or any city, really, in Canada. Walking around Peterborough 80 years ago, imagine taking in all of the sights. Now, imagine if someone asked you, looking at the horizon... What is it that people value in this city? What is it? What, what is the visual cue that would tell you what people value in this city? Well, the visual cue would be the steeples. And it would take you all of three seconds to see that. So when people came to this city, they built two things. They built a church and they built a jail. Right? These are the two things on the top of our hills, a courthouse and a church. And the landscape was littered with churches. And not only did we have churches, but these buildings were the best buildings, which reflected the most thought and care and attention and skill and resources and planning, that these buildings were way nicer than any building that anyone lived in, including the mayor, including anyone else in the city. The nicest buildings in the city were the churches. And it's just, I was just thinking about this. It's just funny because there's such a rejection against, you know, you know the church is not the, the building, it's the people. And this is true. It is true. The church is not the building, it's the people. And you need to think through how you spend your resources that is true. But it is interesting at a time when people didn't even have indoor plumbing that they were building these gorgeous, timeless buildings. And this is simply a reflection of what they value. What, what, do, we need, what do we need to build? What do we need to put our hand to? What do we need to come together to do? We need to build a church. And we shouldn't build a church with the crumbs we should build a church with the first fruits. We should give our best. Sure, it's true that the church building isn't everything, but you tell me, you tell me if I'm wrong. You tell me if our pathetic architecture 
is not in some ways a reflection. Because here's the thing. Our houses are a lot nicer. <laughs> right? These things are built by people in not nice houses. It's not as though our standard of living has stayed the same. It's not as though this is just a reflection of where we're at. Our material prosperity as a whole has gone through the roof compared to the people who built those churches. You know, the great cathedrals were built by peasants. And I think that if we're honest, that this is really a reflection of what we value. What we treasure. What do we give our best to? This is not a church building campaign, but it's something to think about. The thing that you give your best to is the thing you value most. So money, the way we use our resources is a reflection of our value. And the thing we give our best to is the thing we value most. The word first fruits refers to the best of the harvest. Numbers 18, 12. All the best of the oil and the best of the wine and of the grain, which is the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. Israel and their offerings was required to give their best. Numbers 15, 20. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Deuteronomy 18.4, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and for the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give to him. The point of requiring an offering of the first fruits of Israel is to demonstrate that they treasured, that they valued, that they honored God above everything else. It certainly wasn't because God needed it. Hear, O people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, these sacrifices have nothing about satisfying my need. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. What God desires from us in every area of our lives is that we honor him as God. That is, that we honor him as supremely valuable above all things. And one of the ways we do that is by offering up a sacrifice of thanksgiving with our wealth. One of the most famous stories of scripture, the first murder, uh, has to do with a refusal to honor God with one's wealth. Genesis 4, we read the story of Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Notice what it says about them in contrast. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit. It didn't, he didn't bring the first fruits. I remember thinking as I, when I was a young boy hearing this and thinking, I just felt sympathy for Cain. <laughs> I was like, that would suck, right? You and your brother go, both go up to the Lord and you, you, you do your best and God chooses him over you. I mean, I knew it wasn't wrong to kill him at that point, but I, I did. I, initially, I felt sympathy. But that's to miss what's going on in the text. Cain willingly withheld. Cain did not give his first fruits. But it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He brought the best. So these sacrifices were not the same. The decision by God to receive one and not the other wasn't an arbitrary decision. God recognized that Cain was not actually honoring him. Cain was honoring himself. Because what are you doing when you keep the first fruits for yourself? When you don't give them to God, you're keeping them for yourself. You're saying the person that is most valuable here the person is most worthy of the, of the best that I have is me. And so God says that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is instructive. Sin's desire at a fundamental level was for Cain to honor himself. Sin's desire in Cain was for Cain to value himself, to treasure himself himself and not God is supremely worthy. He considered himself more worthy of the first fruit that he withheld from God. We sacrifice to what we value. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the value we are ascribing to the one we sacrifice it to and what we sacrifice for. We all know this, that when a parent lays down their life for their children or a soldier for their country, that they are demonstrating in a very practical, tangible way that they value others more than themselves. And so the first fruit offering for Israel, and what the father is telling his son essentially here, is to give, the God, give God your best because he is the best. The gospel message itself is one of sacrificing something of great value. Christ, the scriptures tell us, is the firstborn of all creation. He is not merely the first fruits of a season's harvest. He is not the firstborn of a herd of sheep. He is the most valuable being in all the world, we read in Colossians, and he willingly lay down his life in loving obedience to God for us. He demonstrated through his love and obedience that he values God above all. He offered his best portion. We also ought to offer all of ourselves to God. Romans 12, 1. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If we're asking the question of how much to give, then we're beginning on the wrong foot. It's not how much do I have to give, how much do I get to give. We ought to offer the best of our lives, the best of our resources to God. The text says wealth, and the use of our resources demonstrates where our treasure is. This principle applies to our wealth. Obviously, it's explicitly referring to our wealth, but this applies to our gifts as well. Do we give the Lord our best? Or do we give the Lord the leftovers? The leftovers of our time. The leftover of our gifts, of our energy. We need to think about these things. Lastly, in closing, we want to consider the result of honoring the Lord with our wealth. The passage is clear. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The father is clear to the son that there is a blessing of prosperity that will take place if he is to honor the Lord with his wealth. The question that this raises for us and people with contemporary sensibilities is what is actually the path to prosperity? A second question like it is what is actually of greatest value? Unbelief says that the path to prosperity is to seek yourself first, to value yourself above all others, to hoard, to take, to consume. But the scriptures say in a variety of ways that that is not actually the path to prosperity at all. It is an illusion. We live in a consumer culture. Part of our, the consequence of our rejecting of God and his word in a Christian worldview is that we view humanity as fundamentally consumers. That we move ahead by taking. This is what you become when you have a materialist worldview. We believe that what we get and what we keep is by taking. But the father tells the son that honoring the Lord is the supreme treasure, is the path to prosperity in this life and the next. First Timothy 6.17, we read a passage that corroborates and builds upon these principles. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice that enjoying riches isn't the sin, because he actually says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The problem and the sin that he is warning us about is setting your hope in riches. That's his warning. Now, there's inherent when you have wealth, that danger just is there. It's always there. So when the Bible warns the rich, it's not to say, when I say the problem's not riches, I mean, riches are the context for the temptation. 
They provide a very real temptation. But that temptation is to put your hope in them, which is to say that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live a happy life. If I have more money, I have more comfort, more prosperity, more peace. And the reason this is easy to believe is because there's a measure to which it is true. You know, wealth is, is health. Certainly the people that are the highest in the economic scale uh, have the best outcomes for physical health, generally speaking. And the people on the lowest bracket economically in the world have the lowest outcomes, generally speaking. This is true because there's a thousand factors that play into that. Your nutrition, the lifestyle that you live, the stress that you have, all a thousand factors go into this. But, but again, the point is not to put your hope in these things. The demonstration that our hope is in God and not in riches is that we are, as Paul tells Timothy, rich in good works, generous and ready to share. The way that you show that your hope is not in these things is that you are eager and willing and easy to give them away. If we're slow to be generous, if we're slow rather than ready to share, it shows that we are holding on to these things for a security and a hope that can only be found in God. He also says that the result of this treasuring of God is treasure for ourselves. Namely, that which is truly life. Material prosperity is not the problem. It's prosperity that is used to the promotion of ourselves and our kingdom. It's, it is wealth that is used to say that we are of utmost value rather than God and rather than others. We need to seek a better reward than wealth alone can offer. And this is the key to having a right understanding of what we have. The key to understanding and handling wealth in a way that honors God is that we acknowledge that there is a far better reward, there is a far better hope than our material wealth could ever offer. Hebrews 11.26, speaking of Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was the most educated man in the ancient Near East. He was one of the most wealthy men in the ancient Near East. He, by in God's kindness, he was brought into a state in life where he never had want, where he experienced the blessing of the greatest empire on earth at the time and all the wealth and security and prosperity and comfort and pleasures that it had to offer. And yet, by God's grace... He considered even the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to Christ. What is the path to prosperity? What is the aim of our resources and our wealth and our lives? Is it to make much of Christ? Is it to demonstrate the worth of Christ? 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of a greater reward than one we could ever accumulate for ourselves. We pray that you would help us in our stewardship of all that you've given to demonstrate the supreme worth of your son. It's in his name that we pray. And amen. We are going to take the Lord's Supper together for those who have put their faith in Christ. This is an opportunity for us to be reminded of the infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ through the shedding of his blood, through the breaking of his body. We will pass out the elements and we will take them together after I've prayed.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. Your Son, whose body was broken for us, for our sins. Whose blood was spilled for us. For our failure to recognize your supreme worth. For our failure to treasure and value you above all things. We thank you for his sacrifice, his body and blood, and pray that you would help us to value him, to honor him. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's eat and drink in remembrance of him.
And our God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and he will increase your harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And through this, it will produce thanksgiving to our God. Let us give him the glory now in singing the doxology together. 